Welcome to The History of the Christian Church, Season 1, with Lance Rolston. This episode of Communio Sanctorum is provocatively titled, The Lapsed Dance. In the fourth episode titled Martyrs, we examined the persecution that Christians faced at the hands of the Roman authorities. We noted that persecution, while at times fierce, wasn't one long campaign of terror that lasted for a couple of centuries. It tended to be spasmodic and regional, based on the whim of the current emperor, and then enforced in spotty fashion by governors who either agreed or disagreed with the official policy from faraway Rome. There were a couple of seasons of empire-wide persecution in the 3rd century that proved to be the most intense. Following Trajan's more even-handed attempt to deal with the problem of the Christians in the early 2nd century, two emperors followed a more rigorous campaign of persecution and pressed its application to the borders of the empire. In the mid to late 3rd century, Decius and Diocletian considered Christianity a dangerous threat. Their reasons for opposing the faith were several, but looming large was the concern Christianity would weaken the army, desperately needed to protect the borders that were being harassed by barbarians. Also, die-hard pagans claimed that the old gods who'd overseen Rome's rise to greatness were angry that so many of their worshippers had turned to this new faith. They warned that disaster loomed, and the only way to stay it was to appease the wrath of the gods by slaking it with Christian blood. To this end, some emperors renewed an old practice, emperor worship. While the details of this practice varied from time to time and place to place, the basic routine went like this. Once every so many years, the residents of a city had to appear in the public square, where they ascended a raised platform, picked up a pinch of incense, dropped it on some hot coals, and announced, Caesar is Lord. Now, the exact words of the oath varied depending on who was sitting on the throne, but the point was to honor the reigning Roman emperor as a deity, minor as that deity might be in the pagan pantheon. While pagans, who already recognized a plethora of gods, had no problem adding one more to the list, Christians owned a fierce repulsion to confessing anyone other than Jesus as Lord. They simply couldn't do it. As the pagan left the dais after going through this little rite, he was handed what was called a labelli, a certificate proving his loyalty. And he kept that certificate as proof of his loyalty, producing it whenever some authority asked him to show his compliance with Rome's decree. In this manner, the Christians were marked out because they had no labelli. Now, as can be imagined, this challenge led to some memorable martyrdoms, especially in North Africa, where Christianity flourished. It also led to one of the biggest controversies the church had yet faced. Some Christians, under the threat of death, capitulated to the pressure, burned the incense, and spoke filthy to Caesar. They took the libelli and what about their business? Once the emperor Decius was gone and persecution eased, these capitulators repented their weakness and applied for readmission to the church. The challenge for church leaders was, what was to be done with these lapsed members, as they were called? Some advocated their readmission to the fellowship pending a review of their specific case by the local elders. Others, led by a church leader named Novation, argued vehemently for their exclusion. For Novation and his supporters, there was no room for any kind of negotiation. The lapsed were to be barred from fellowship. 
The controversy between the Novationists and the majority of churches, which by that time had made the church at Rome their unofficial headquarters, became so great, it seemed that there was only one way to solve it. The Novationists were declared heretical by the majority and put outside the communion of saints. The Novationist controversy flared up again following the last great persecution under the Emperor Diocletian, and this time it went by the name of Donatism. During the Diocletian persecution, in order to avoid becoming martyrs, some church leaders had not only submitted to Caesar worship, they'd surrendered sacred texts to the imperial authorities and had shamefully ratted out other believers. Such lapsed leaders were called traditores, meaning those who surrender. One of those traditores was a man by the name of Cassilian, also known as Cyprian. Cyprian hadn't capitulated and worshipped Caesar, but he did go into hiding when the edict reached Carthage, where he was bishop. His critics said that he was, well, no better than those that had lapsed by his desertion of his post. When the persecution lifted, he wanted to return to his position. The church at Carthage was the lead church of all North Africa, a region with a large population of Christians. The novationist leanings of the previous generation were most strong there, and were renewed at this time, sparked by the reinstallation of Cyprian. Those who refused to accept him selected their own leader in an elder named Majorinus, whom they made a rival bishop to Cyprian. Majorinus died shortly after being consecrated, and so he was replaced by Donatus Magnus, who advocated the same path of rejecting traditoris from church leadership. The Donatus controversy is important because what was at stake was the Christian concept of forgiveness and reconciliation. Was the act of saying Caesar is Lord while burning incense to an image of the emperor an act of idolatry that marked one as an apostate? Or was such a coerced act something from which there was no repentance? Some said the betrayal by lapsed believers was a renouncing of Christ that condemned them to hell. Others said that while some believers became martyrs and their faith was exemplary, those who gave in to the threat of death could not be held responsible and so could be readmitted to the fold if they showed proper repentance. But such returned believers could not serve in any capacity of leadership in the church. Some held a view of reconciliation so far-reaching they said that even pastors who'd lapsed could be restored to their positions. And what emerged during this time of debate was the importance of baptism. In the book of Acts, Baptism appears to have been used by the apostles as the means by which believers identified their faith in Christ and their participation in the community of faith. On the day of Pentecost, Peter called for new converts to be baptized immediately. Philip led the Ethiopian eunuch in immediate baptism. Baptism at the moment of conversion seems to be the New Testament pattern and practice in the apostolic church. But at some point, church leaders began delaying baptism calling for converts to have a time of learning before being officially welcomed into the church. The reason for this delay is uncertain, but it may have come as a result of seeing that some supposed converts didn't follow through on their commitment. They fell away after a short time. So, by delaying baptism and preceding it with a period of instruction, well, it hopefully would give the convert a time to prove the genuineness of their conversion. While conversion is a work of the Holy Spirit in the human heart, baptism was seen as the way that someone made a public profession of faith, and so they were ushered into the community of Christ. 
So uh, baptism became a kind of definitive line in the sand. It was thought that if someone renounced Christ after being baptized, well, they were an apostate to whom repentance was now impossible. As might be suspected, different regions understood all of this differently. Some held that to go apostate meant that a person had forfeited salvation and so was destined for hell. Others held that a seeming apostate was able to repent and return to grace, but their renouncing of the Lord meant that they were forever excluded from fellowship. So they could be saved, but they were barred from attending church or taking communion. Another position said that if someone did repent of what had earlier appeared to be a renouncing of Christ, well, it was evidence they hadn't really gone apostate because if they had, they wouldn't repent. Therefore, repentance and the demonstration of a desire to return to God's grace were evidence of salvation, and for that reason, the repentant ought to be readmitted to fellowship. So the timing of baptism became a major issue once persecution broke out and a threat of martyrdom. Baptism was delayed even longer than it had been because of the line it was thought to have crossed. If a Christian caved during persecution and took a libelli before they'd been baptized, well, returning to fellowship would be easier. But if he or she lapsed after baptism, well, then returning was more difficult, especially among groups like the Novatians and Donatists. As we'll see later, this issue of the timing of baptism extended beyond the era of imperial persecution. When the church began to invest certain sins with greater moral weight and consequence, many people delayed baptism lest they commit a major sin after baptism and so incur greater judgment. But for now, let's return to the Donatist controversy. Donatist and his followers held the view that pastors and elders who lapsed during the Diocletian persecutions were forever barred from leading the church. Yeah, maybe they could be restored to fellowship, but being a leader in the church was out of the question. The majority view was that lapsed leaders could indeed be restored. And as you might imagine, the debate was fierce. Many towns were divided between Donatist and non-Donatist congregations. The Donatists were particularly strong in North Africa, while the church at Rome led the non-Donatists who prevailed in Europe. The controversy raged for a hundred years and became one of the most contentious issues the church had to deal with in the early centuries. What made the Donatist controversy such a particularly heated topic was the great admiration that believers held for martyrs who'd maintained their faith and confession of Christ even at the cost of their lives. The question was, how could they be held in such high regard when those who lapsed could be so easily restored to fellowship? Were, in fact, martyrs foolish to cast away their lives when a, well, a little negotiation and capitulation could have saved them? No, martyrdom was baptism by blood considered the utmost glory that a believer could attain to. A careful record of the martyrs was kept. The days of their martyrdom celebrated every year. And with each celebration, well, their stories grew. Their failings were edited out and their reputation embellished until they took on a decidedly otherworldly quality. The martyrs were quickly morphing into saints, early Christian superheroes. The idea then began to develop in North Africa, where there had been so many notable martyrdoms, that their exceptional courage achieved a kind of special grace from God that could be turned to other purposes, like, well, how about we use it to forgive the sins of others? Sins like those who'd lapsed. Yeah, that's it. The righteousness of the martyrs who died rather than recant was so great, 
it made a reserve of grace that those who'd avoided martyrdom could draw from. <laughs> How convenient. Some bishops thought this was a grand idea. Others, of course, opposed it. But wanting to find some means by which the lapse could be returned to fellowship, they devised various means and forms of penance by which repentant lapsi could demonstrate the sincerity of their desire to return to the fold. Cyprian, the bishop of Carthage that was mentioned before, devised a system to allow the lapse to be reconciled to the church. He said that simple repentance was enough for those who'd sacrificed to the emperor after severe torture. But those who'd caved at the mere suggestion of pain, well, they had to submit to a penance of punishments. His plan won widespread approval and the church created a system of penance based on the severity of the guilt of the lapsed. Bishops met with repentant lapsi and prescribed their penance like spiritual doctors dispensed medicine. If and when the penitent successfully jumped through the prescribed hoops, he or she was allowed to return to fellowship and most importantly, to partake of the Lord's table. While this system of penance was proposed and installed in various places, other regions rejected it as contrary to the character of grace found in the New Testament. And while it went into general disuse when official persecution ended in the 4th century, the doctrinal foundation was laid for the later system of penance and the treasury of merit that would be practiced under the title of indulgences. But all of that is for a much later episode. I want to end by saying thanks to those who have subscribed to Communio Sanctorum and have told others about the podcast. If you haven't done so yet, drop by the Facebook page and let us know where you live. The CS family stretches literally around the world. If you use iTunes as your podcast portal, please think about writing a review. That's the most important way to get the word out about the podcast. While CS is free, we've had to include a donate feature because the costs of hosting the site have gone dramatically up. Lastly, I'm quite stoked to announce that CS is now appearing in Spanish. You can find information that you need to follow up on this at our website, www.sanctorum.us. Sanctorum is spelled S-A-N-C-T-O-R-U-M. Thanks for joining us at Communio Sanctorum. We really appreciate your listening and subscribing. Listeners are invited to like the Communio Sanctorum Facebook page and to write a review in the iTunes store. For both Facebook and iTunes, search for History of the Christian Church. Looking forward to joining you next time.